Well, Art, you just, uh, you just put me in a time machine and took me back about 50, maybe 60 years. I can still remember sitting in the little country congregation where I grew up. Y'all know where that is. <laughs> and sitting between my dad and my grandfather who would sit at the other end of the pew and we would sing that song, He Bore It All. And my dad and grandfather were both basses. They weren't just basses, they were good basses. And I, can, I remember as a kid feeling the seat vibrate. <laughs> and I, I've always loved that song for the vibration. No, it's a wonderful, wonderful song. And it really encapsulates what we're going to be talking about for the next few minutes this morning. I heard the story about a little boy who came running into, into the house through the, through the front door, screaming like a, a burglar alarm. His name was Doug, and he was only four years old. And the dad wanted to know immediately, of course, hearing the kid scream as he comes in the front door, what had happened. Had Ike, their dog, been you know, hit by a Mack truck? Had Doug wandered into the property that bordered uh, their, their lot and had maybe been bitten by a snake? Had, had a feisty friend from down the street hit him with a two-for-four? I mean, Dad wanted to know what, what had taken place, what had happened. But it was none of the above. The problem was, well, the problem was he had a splinter in his finger. It was, it was big enough that you could almost see it. Well, the mother went dutifully to the medicine cabinet for tweezers and alcohol, and, of course, that's when the needle pegged out on the screen meter completely. But she carefully removed the splinter. She bathed that tiny little puncture with, with alcohol. She examined it from every possible angle, as serious in her duties as would be a surgeon. And the dad was standing by, of course, amused, because that's what dads do. He then added, innocently asked, why such a fuss over a little splinter? Big mistake. The mom gave him a look that could wilt an artificial flower. That little splinter, she snapped, could cause an infection which could invade his body, which could kill him. I repeat, which could kill him. Okay, no more questions, Your Honor. I use that illustration to, to tell you that in a lot of ways, that, that splinter is like the sin in our lives, at least at first, in that it can cause a, a lot of problems, and sometimes it causes problems and consequences that we not, had not considered early on. In fact, I doubt that there's anyone in this audience, either here this morning or watching online, who can honestly say that there isn't some transgression, some sin, some serious mistake in our lives that if we had known how that would turn out, we would have made a completely different decision altogether. And yet sin has consequences. And Paul reminds us in Galatians 6 and verse 7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, whatsoever a man sows. That shall he also reap. Solomon reminds us in the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, that the way of the transgressor is hard. So there are consequences to sin. Even when sin starts out small, like a little splinter in our finger. In fact, I've read some statistics about sin and its physical repercussions. That it actually affects our health. That it can attack, attack your nervous system. It can affect your heartbeat. It can upset your digestion. It can even cause ulcers. And it can certainly wreck your mind and it can ruin your life. But most seriously of all, James reminds us in James 1 and verse 15 that it carries within it the seed of spiritual death. 
You may remember at that end of that discourse that began in verse 13 of James 1. In verse 15 is where he says, and sin when it is finished brings forth death. What makes it so serious is that the Bible student knows that James is referring to spiritual death there. And the death refers to a separation from God. So James is envisioning a time maybe in this life when we are separated from God completely by our sin. But that's not what I meant to do. Or maybe even the possibility of that sin having brought forth the wrong kind of fruit in our life. It can also mean separation from God in eternity, which certainly makes the matter even more serious. You know, if you step on a rusty nail, there's a protocol. You don't just ignore it unless you clean the wound, then you are inviting trouble. And we all know that. Otherwise, and likewise, you ignore sin at your own risk. And even though at the beginning it may hurt very little, if, if at all, it still has consequences, it still has repercussions that we're going to have to eventually deal with. And if it wasn't so serious, the way some people react to and deal with sin would be downright comical. By that I mean that we are like little children, like Doug, in the illustration with which we opened this lesson. Sometimes in the dealing with our sin, we, we watch little children scream and run and hide and do anything in order to avoid the sting of antiseptic, that is, of sterilizing that wound, although that is what is best for them. And when sin occurs in our lives, and it will, we need to learn to, to run to God, if you need to write this down, please do, because I want you to remember it. We need to learn to run to God and not from God with our sin and its guilt. I believe that we would all be in tacit agreement on that point. We need to let him cleanse our wound. We need to let him eliminate our pain. And I imagine to a person, every one of us, again, is still in complete agreement with that premise. And we all understand that, at least on a cognitive level. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how do we do that? And that's what I want us to discuss for just a few minutes this morning. By the way, there's a couple of things that I need to add here, kind of as, as a side note. Side note number one is to assure you and myself that God loves us whatever our sin might be. Let me say that again because that's so crucial. God loves you and he loves every one of us no matter what our sin might be. You know, that father in the story didn't stop loving his son just because he had stuck his finger with a splinter. And he would have loved him if he had done something far more foolish and more harmful. In fact, for most fathers, it's impossible to think of anything that a son or daughter might do, and, and I mean anything at all, that would keep him from loving that child. Because that's the way fathers are. And we need to remember that God loves us no matter what we've done. Because that's the way our Heavenly Father is. And if you don't believe that, or if you need to be reminded of that spiritual reality, I would encourage you to go back this very afternoon and reread Luke chapter 15. A second side note is that we need to point out, before we get to the psalm that David read a moment ago, is that you need to forgive yourself for your sin I've said from this pulpit a number of times that the problem in the life of many Christians isn't obtaining God's forgiveness. It's learning how to forgive themselves. And sometimes that's the greatest challenge that confronts us. 
Can you imagine that son spending the rest of his life, you know, castigating himself for the fact that he stabbed his finger with a splinter? And, and I can't either. And so I'm suggesting to you, don't spend another day. In fact, don't spend another minute beating yourself up for having made some mistake, no matter, no matter what that, that mistake might have been. You turn to God for divine treatment. Listen to me, church. Turn to God for divine treatment and then move on with your life. A man who was teetering near the edge of emotional collapse came to speak to his preacher. And he had problems. And I mean really big problems. And his world was was falling apart. His business was in shambles. His marriage was not far behind. And the reason for his anguish was some mistake that he had made years ago. And the memory of that sin still nagged him constantly and it plagued him unmercifully. And, and he really needed the help not only of a preacher but of a good psychologist to be able to work through some of that baggage. And he was so consumed with guilt that he simply could not function in the here and now. And, and he was a good-hearted man and he was sincerely sorry for his sin, but that was a part of the issue. He had confessed it, he had been forgiven of it, and he had tried to forget it. But he had been unsuccessful, at least in that last part. He simply could not forget it. Well, the preacher read with him, and they discussed an appropriate passage of Scripture. And they prayed. And the fellow was feeling better by the time he left. But guess what? A week later, he was right back in the preacher's office again in that same self-condemning condition. And the preacher said to him, God must be sad. And he said, why? And he said, because... you." Because you don't trust him. Oh, yes, I do. No, you don't. Well, why do you say that? Because he promised to forgive you. And you don't trust him to do it. That really is the issue, isn't it? Do you and I trust God? That's the fundamental question that I need to ask you this morning. And do we accept his forgiveness at face value? I have often said in my preaching and teaching that repentance takes place in our hearts, that is, in our, in our minds. How do we know that if we truly repented? Well, you have to know yourself. Nobody else can really know whether or not you've repented except by the way you act from that point forward. So repentance takes place in our heart. Forgiveness place, takes place in the heart of God. How do you know that God has forgiven you? You have to take his word for it. You have to trust him. You have to accept his constant reassurances in Scripture that whenever we confess our sin penitently to him, that he is more than happy to wipe that sin from his book of memory. A second story I think perhaps would be helpful. An elder spent a half an hour with a lady one day in, in the church office trying to interrupt her. But he was unsuccessful in doing that. She would not let him talk. And, and, and she hogged the conversation. She was slamming herself nonstop for a sin that she had committed when she was a teenager. And it didn't take the elder much math to know that that was some 30 years ago. And finally she paused and asked, will you pray for me and ask God to forgive me of that sin? And the elder said, I'm sorry, but I can't do that. She was surprised by that reaction, of course, because elders are supposed to pray for anybody. But he said, no, I can't do that. God wouldn't even know what we're talking about. And she said, what? And he asked, well, isn't this the same thing that we prayed about the last time that you came to see me? And she said, well, yes. And didn't we ask God to forgive you then? 
And again, the response was, well, yes. And he said, the Bible promises that when God forgave you, he forgot your sin. Wouldn't it be an insult to question his promise? I think that's a really good question. Does God really make that promise? That is, that he will forget our sin when they are forgiven. And the answer is absolutely yes. Listen to this passage. I will forgive their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. By the way, for good measure, sometimes God's people need to be reminded. It's called space repetition. That's the way we learn. And so that, that promise is given in the Old Testament, Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four, And then it is repeated in the New Testament, Hebrews 8 and verse 12. Listen to it again. I will forgive their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. The Bible tells us then emphatically that God forgives, that, and when he does that, he erases that infraction from our ledger book. It will no longer be held to our charge. God has wiped that from his book of memory. Now, I'm not a doctor, but I do sometimes recommend prescriptions. And for people who are suffering with agonizing guilt, and that may be you, I prescribe strong doses of Psalm 51. By the way, that was the passage that the preacher shared and read with the man that we talked about just a moment ago. Psalm 51, of course, as most of you know, is David's, King David's prayer of confession and his plea for forgiveness after the prophet Nathan had gone to him and said, you are the man. This is the message that I have for you, that you have sinned. And David immediately acknowledged that. And we have Psalm 51 as a consequence, as a result of that meeting between the prophet. By the way, I've often asked, how would you, have got, how would you like to have gotten that visitation card? I want you to go to the king and tell him that he has sinned egregiously. Look him in the eye. Point your finger at him if you have to. But you're the one that I've given this assignment, Nathan. And Nathan did that. He did that faithfully. Why don't you get your Bible and turn to Psalm 51 right now and, and let's talk for just a minute about what suggestions that it can have for us if we're dealing with sin and guilt in our lives. Look at just a few sentences in David's prayer, then we'll be through. Let's start with verse 1. Isn't that a great place to start? Notice how David begins his prayerful petition to a gracious and loving and forgiving God. He says in the opening, and I, I, I'm afraid sometimes we almost run through this kind of like we do when we're reading a letter that says, dear, whatever, you know, well, I'm, I'm reading the letter, so I know that you addressed it to me. He begins this by saying, have mercy on me, O God. That's not a throwaway sentence. That is a sentence of monumental importance. And I hope that we appreciate how significant it can be in our lives. I overheard a conversation one time in a store. In fact, it wasn't that long ago. Well, actually, it wasn't a conversation so much as it was a monologue. And said the woman who was holding court, I don't go to church, but I'm basically a good person and. Well, I didn't listen to the rest of her sermon because I didn't need to. I knew where she was going with that monologue. And it was like this. Justice would demand that God would reward her goodness. That was the basic premise of her sermon that day. When we turn to Psalm 51 and we read the opening verse, we go, wow, David had a completely different take on it, didn't he? 
David did not come to God and say, I've been basically a good person. I've done a lot of good in my life. No, what he does is probably fall on his knees, maybe even on his face, which was the custom in those days in extreme moments of petition, and say, have mercy on me, O God. David knew what it was like to lie awake at night because of the guilt that consumed him. And and his take was was completely different than a person who would attempt to rationalize or, or, or in some way justify their sin. He didn't want and he didn't plead for justice. He wanted mercy. We have to notice that. He, he made absolutely no attempt to offset his vices with his virtues. And he could have, you know. David had done a lot of good in his life. He was a good king. His job rating was, was off the charts in terms of his popularity with the people. And remember that God himself was the one who had chosen David to be king in the first place. Chosen him. Because of his good heart. Did you know that David's name appears more than anyone else's in scripture? Even Jesus. David's name appears over a thousand times in scripture. And he was called, in probably the most well-known verse about David, a man after God's own heart. And those are pretty stout credentials, wouldn't you say? But David didn't work the phones. And he didn't blitz the talk shows with his PR people in a campaign of damage control when he was confronted with his sin by Nathan the prophet that day. In fact, he did not offer, and you can read through Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, and I I think that you will find this to be true, he did not offer a single argument in his own defense. Didn't try to rationalize it, didn't even try to explain it. He didn't try to bargain with God. He didn't attempt to put a favorable face on his sin. What he did was, what he did was throw himself on the mercy of God. That was his only hope. So have mercy on me, O God. He pleaded, and God responded, glad to. I'm here to tell you that mercy is our only hope, too. And something that God is glad to give. In fact, Micah 7 and verse 18 reminds us that God delights in showing mercy. Isn't that a wonderful thought to entertain on a beautiful Sunday morning? To know that God doesn't have to be persuaded to forgive us. He delights in showing mercy. Here's a second statement that we need to notice in this penitential psalm. It's found in verse 3. I acknowledge my transgressions, and watch this. This is even more insightful. And my sin is always before me. Allow me to illustrate. Moy Ling, L-I-N-G was his last name, was a superb craftsman. He was a carver of fine stones, had carried on the jewelry business that his father had left to him. In fact, at that moment, he was still working with his father, and they were partners in that business, and he had learned the art from his father. Well, Moy was sculpting a a beautiful bracelet one day, in fact, from a a beautiful, very expensive piece of jade. And it required intricate work and and, and the the craftsmanship that he had had, uh, developed over the years. And and as he was finishing, though, his carving tool slipped and, and made a tiny nick in one of the flowers on that bracelet. When Moy's father saw the end result, 
saw the completed bracelet, he was thrilled by his son's exquisite work because he knew that it would bring a good price. But Moy said, no, father, we can't sell this bracelet because it's flawed. And then he pointed out the imperfection which even the expert eye of his father had not detected. I believe it was with that same sense that David said, I acknowledge. That is, some versions actually say, I know my transgressions. I am intimately familiar with my sins. It is not something that just occurred to me when you mentioned it. I have been thinking about this, and I have been dwelling on this, and this has been plaguing me for a long, long time. I know my transgressions. His sins, although they may have been hidden from others, were hideously conspicuous to David. And I believe most of us in the audience, whether here or online, can say, yeah, I know that feeling. I am well well aware of my sin and my shortcomings. And David said, my my sin is, is ever before me. Think for a moment about that and the weight of it. That means that that David never, ever, for the rest of his life, ever walked out on his balcony without thinking about, this is the place I stood when I looked across the way and saw Bathsheba bathe, which started this mess. He never put his head on his pillow without remembering going to bed with someone who did not belong to him. He never reached for his pen or sent a servant on an errand ever again without remembering the time when he issued the warrant that sealed the death of a faithful soldier. Knowledge of his sin was a constant companion. That's what David is telling us, always pointing its crooked, accusing finger directly at him. Guilty? Yes. Weary of of living with guilt? Double yes. Verse 7. Sprinkle me with the cleansing blood, and I shall be clean again. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. What a refreshing thought that is. It had been a long time since David had felt clean. And and, and David is telling us, I want to know what that feels like again. I want to be able to wake up and to go to sleep again with, with a clear conscience. He wanted to be washed, and he wanted to be cleansed, and he wanted to be purified. He didn't want to go around with that cloud of guilt hanging over his head. And and, and with the impending incessant sense that, man, I have made a mess of my life. I have failed spiritually. I have sinned against God, which is what exactly what he said in this psalm. If he had lived in our day, David probably would have said something like this. I'm tired of singing almost all to Jesus I surrender. Almost all to him I freely give. I'm ready to give every part of my life to the Lord. I want to be cleansed and purified. And I want to be absolved of this awful sin in my life. Verse 10. Create in me a pure, or some versions say, clean heart, O God. David... And this really needs to be pointed out to do justice to the text. Was not asking for forgiveness here. He had already obtained forgiveness. When the prophet Nathan confronted him with his sin, we've already noted that King David did not dodge. He did not rationalize, did not attempt to justify his sin. He simply said, I have sinned against the Lord. And you might note, here's the Bible for it, 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13, Nathan's immediate response when David said that was, the Lord has taken away your sin. 
So please appreciate that at the point when David wrote Psalm 51, his sins have already been forgiven by a gracious and loving God. That's how fast God forgives. That's how completely and thoroughly God forgives. And I hope you don't miss that point. So let me say it another way. The turnaround time between confession of sin and forgiveness of that sin for the child of God is zero. When you approach God with guilt in your heart and confession on your lips, forgiveness is yours before you ever put a period at the end of the sentence. Isn't that good to know? I mean, we all need to know that. And we all need at times in our lives to rest our blessed assurance in that holy fact. David knew, I think, that he had been pardoned, that he had been forgiven, but he wanted more. He didn't just want pardon, folks. He wanted purity. Cleanse me, he said. Not just a new start. David said, I need a new nature that will make this new start last. Not just angioplasty. I need a new heart. I need a trans heart transplant. That's what David wanted. He wanted his diseased heart replaced with a new one. One that was filled with clean thoughts and right desires. I want to be able to walk out on my balcony and see anything and not lust after it. I want to have the kind of heart that every day wakes up saying, I want to do God's will today. That says and makes that renewed commitment every day of his or her life, I want to do the right thing. Not the selfish thing. Not the thing that will gratify my flesh. I want to do what God wants me to do. David said, that's what I want. And yet think about what he had to go through to reach that point. Let's not write some sad autobiography at the end of our lives saying, if only I had not made this great mistake, I'm writing this book to help you to avoid it. Wouldn't it be better for us to, rather than having to repent of some egregious sin in our life, to simply have avoided it in the first place? And I believe that's one of the reasons why this psalm is in Scripture, don't you? So that we can avoid the mistakes that David, the king of Israel, a man with that much power and that much wisdom and that much responsibility that he made in his own life. Here's the final thing I want us to notice. It's in verse 12. And I imagine, by the way, and consider this a challenge, that if you walk through Psalm 50, 51, you would find even more points of, of relevance and application in our lives today than the ones that I've mentioned this morning. But time only allows a few, so let's, let's end with verse 12. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. David had once known the joy of salvation, but he'd made a lousy trade. He had exchanged a God-centered life for a self-centered life, a sin-centered life. And he had learned that sin and joy cannot live together in the same heart, that they are incompatible roommates. And so there was in David's heart and in his life a desperate sense of loss. At the point when he wrote Psalm 51, he was not, as we've just noticed, he was not without salvation. But watch this carefully, church. He had lost the joy of it. It's very possible that you are forgiven this morning, but you still lost the joy of your salvation. 
Maybe for a number of reasons, but maybe because you're still dealing with the guilt of that, of that awful choice. So here, here's a king who, who lived in luxury, who had, had everything the world could give, but he had lost the most important and most valuable thing of all. And that was the joy of his salvation. Lost what the world cannot give. And, and he wanted it back. And he wanted it back desperately. Think about what David had done. And, and, and we don't have time to make a list of, of all of his mistakes. But I'll just mention the most obvious. There was adultery and murder. Do we need to go on? And, and those were the most obvious sins of David. And I mentioned that just in case you're wondering. Just in case you're wondering if your sins are too vile. For even a gracious and merciful God to forgive. And, and you may be thinking, surely there's nobody in here foolish enough to, to ever imagine that God cannot or will not forgive our sins no matter what they are. No, I, I believe there are people exactly like that. And maybe some under the sound of my voice this morning. Because I talk to people frequently who feel exactly that way. Do you not understand that God has forgiven you? Yes, I understand that up here. But I can't wrap my heart around that fact. Listen carefully. And if you forget everything else we said this morning, what I'm about to say will make no sense whatsoever. No, I I want you to hang on to this next statement. The door, and and this is the whole point of, of the time that we've spent in this psalm this morning. The door that David entered to be with God again is wide enough for everyone. Amen? Once we understand that in our souls and not just in our minds, it will make a huge difference in our approach to Christian living and the attitude with which we live the Christian life. It's no accident that God turned a couple of the worst sinners ever found anywhere, especially in Scripture, into some of the best saints. I'm talking about David in the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament. Imagine that transformation that took place in their lives. And before we end, let's let Paul describe his own spiritual condition for himself. I'm I'm talking about 1 Timothy chapter 1, 15 through 16. Paul writes, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. But for this reason, I obtained mercy. There's the word. I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering. That just means his unlimited patience as an example to those who would believe on him for everlasting life. I'm just saying to you, good people, don't even think about putting a limit on the mercy of God. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And as we continue to walk in the light, his blood keeps on cleansing us from all sin. 1 John 1 and verse 7 says, I'm just telling you that whatever your sin is, the bandage is always wider than the wound. Looking at the past, every one of us can see a lot of mistakes that will humble us if we have the right spiritual attitude in mind and and may even make us ashamed But I'm telling you this morning that looking to God gives us every reason to be encouraged. In Psalm 51, David came clean. He told God everything and he asked for forgiveness. And what was the result? I'm going to let him tell you. And we're going back to Psalm 32 in order to do that. 
Got your Bible? Flip a few pages, if you will, to Psalm 32, and then we're through. I'm going to read verses 3 through 5 right now. When I kept silent, my bones grew, grew old. That is, before I confessed my sin. As long as I stayed quiet about it and did not acknowledge my sin, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin. I acknowledged that's past tense, my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I think Psalm 51 is a pretty good prescription. How about you? But here's the problem. Here's the rub. It's always easier to believe that there is grace for the world than it is to believe that there is grace and hope and forgiveness for you and me. Martin Luther, the renowned Reformationist, believed completely and preached confidently that Jesus died for the world long before he came to wrap his brain around the fact that Jesus had also died for Martin Luther. As a young man, John Wesley crossed the Atlantic to preach forgiveness to the Indians, but according to his biography, not until he reached middle age, did he accept the possibility that there could be forgiveness for John Wesley? Forgiveness is not just a word, dear friends, and it's not just for the world. It's for every one of us. Psalm 32, this time verses 1 and 2. Let's complete the thought by going back and reading those two verses. What happiness, David writes, what happiness for those whose guilt has been forgiven, what joy when sins are covered over. What relief for those who have confessed their sins and God has cleared their record. Did you see all the gifts available to us in that text? David talks about happiness and joy and relief. And you can have those gifts. And they won't cost you a dime. They are covered by insurance. And the premium has already been paid at Calvary. It's God's gift to you. But you have to accept that in grateful obedience. And this morning you may need to, to obey the Lord in order to appropriate the redemption that his blood makes available to every person in this world. And if you've not allowed your faith in Jesus Christ and to the God who sent him to cause you to repent of your past sins, I hope this will be the day when you do that. When just like David, you say, okay, it's time for me to man up or, excuse me, ladies, woman up, whatever the case may be. It's time for me to approach this like a mature individual and say, I have sinned. I am terribly sorry for how I have broken the heart of God by my sin. And I repent sincerely of that. And, and I vow and commit to not living that way anymore. I confess Jesus as God's son and I want his blood to cover my sins this morning so that I can leave this place with the joy of my salvation while we stand and while we sing. Jesus, let us...